I'm Greg Levine, Chair of the Life Sciences Regulatory and Compliance Practice Group at Ropes and Gray, based in our Washington, D.C. office. Welcome to Non-Binding Guidance, a podcast series from Ropes and Gray focused on current trends in FDA regulatory law, as well as other important developments affecting the life sciences industry. I'm here today with Lauren Silvis, Senior Vice President of External Affairs for Tempest, a clinical and molecular technology company. In her role at Tempest, Lauren oversees regulatory, public policy, and government affairs for the company. Prior to joining Tempest, Lauren spent a number of years at the FDA, first as Deputy Center Director for Policy in the agency's Center for Devices and Radiological Health, and subsequently as the FDA Chief of Staff, where she was responsible for overseeing the daily management of the agency and leading the agency's activities on major initiatives. Over the last few months, Lauren and former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb have co-authored several reports and articles on COVID-19. In March, they published a widely read report through the American Enterprise Institute titled National Coronavirus Response Roadmap to Reopening, which took an early look at the current COVID-19 pandemic in the United States and how to adapt our current public health approach to limit the epidemic spread of the virus. Later in April, they released a report through the Duke Margolis Center for Health Policy that examined how a national surveillance system could be used to mitigate the pandemic wave and suppress future outbreaks. Most recently, they co-authored a Wall Street Journal article titled How Businesses Can Keep Employees Safe from Coronavirus. It was that article that prompted my interest in discussing today's topic with Lauren. Lauren, thank you for taking the time to join our podcast today. It's a pleasure to be here. Terrific. Well, before we get into today's specific topic on COVID-19 diagnostic testing by employers, what are your general impressions of how FDA has handled regulation of COVID diagnostic testing? There's been significant criticism, for example, that FDA initially went too far in loosening the regulatory reins, particularly with many of the antibody tests. Um, we've now seen FDA have to withdraw some of those, uh, the authorizations for some of those uh, that they found to be insufficiently accurate. So I'm just curious about your impression of how the agency has been trying to achieve this balance between uh, having sufficient access to testing and also ensuring the accuracy of the tests that are available. Well, I think FDA is dealing with an unprecedented um, public health crisis where they've never had to authorize so many tests and so many different types of tests under an EUA so quickly. Um, so I was at the agency when tests were coming in for Zika and Ebola, um, and it was a very different flow, and, and those were you know different kinds of outbreaks. And now they're having to deal with authorizing tests that are purely run by labs. Many different types of technologies are coming in. They're also having to deal with sponsors who aren't as used to dealing with FDA, um, and so they're trying to keep their um, approach flexible. Um, and the antibody approach, you know, I understand why initially they um, didn't review those because they weren't diagnostic and we were in a diagnostic crunch and those were the ones that needed the most oversight. But I think once FDA realized that there were concerns about the test performance, they recalibrated and, and changed their approach. So, you know, they're being flexible and continuing to evolve. And we're seeing that even now by updating their templates for different types of testing and different types of technology because, um, you know, there's different things coming in the door for them all the time. What about this, the, the fundamental question of whether EUAs are required for these tests if they're developed by laboratories? As uh, you well know, there's been a whole debate about LDTs, laboratory-developed tests, and how those ought to be regulated, um, and historically FDA has not regulated LDTs. How is it and why is it that labs are having to go through the EUA process here? Um, FDA's approach had been laboratory-developed tests generally um, are under enforcement discretion and don't need FDA review, but in the context of um, a declared public health emergency, when the, the declaration is made that um, 
there can be EUAs, then once that process is invoked, then um, even LDTs need to speak to EUA. That had been the policy before COVID. Lauren, you mentioned the this coronavirus situation currently as being very different from what the agency faced with respect to diagnostic testing for the Zika virus. Why is this such a different situation currently? Um, because there, the initial need for testing was more localized. Um, we, there were labs running that testing, and CDC was running it mostly um, in Puerto Rico and the southeast. And then um, you didn't need the nationwide testing stood up right away so quickly, the same way um, you know we needed it here across both the public health laboratories and then hospital-based testing as well. So, you know, the needs here were, were much more accelerated and, and nationwide um, from the beginning, where Zika could roll out um, more stepwise. I wanted to turn now to some of the topics that are raised in your recent commentary article in the Wall Street Journal. Um, in, the, in that article, you and former Commissioner Gottlieb um, discussed that the, the notion that widespread testing will be an essential element uh, in avoiding a second wave of coronavirus in, infections. And I'm wondering if you could just uh, explain a little more your thinking on that. Sure. Um, well, in, in, in order to deal with the, um, the, the increasing cases that we're having now and certainly going into the fall, we need widespread access um, to testing and, and contact tracing. There has to be a, um, a larger public health backdrop to all of this. But, you know, there, there may be opportunities to expand testing, not just at healthcare sites and pop-up sites, but for employers to offer it and to have um, a number of different options and a number of different, um, you know, types of technologies that are used for testing so that, you know, we don't have the same weights and lines and that we have, um, you know, different ways of testing people based on their need, based on local outbreak, based on their risk of exposure, based on what's happening in the community. And so, you know, the more options there are, I think the better place we'll be in as we um, head into the fall when we do think cases will rise. And then on this topic of return to work, which is the main focus of your article, what is your view on the role of diagnostic testing and what that adds to the use of lower tech options that generally speaking are going to be lower cost? The low tech solutions are incredibly important and those are social distancing, um, wearing masks, um, and, um, you know, those kinds of tools are incredibly important in terms of preventing the spread. And then a step above that, you know, the, the more we have an ability to figure out who needs a diagnostic test or how to incorporate it in a return to work plan. So, um, you know, there's some understanding of how it can be useful. So whether it's an app that, you know, um, identifies signs and symptoms, but also potential exposures or that has contact tracing um, in the office so that there is someone who does have COVID and you know who they might have interacted with, those are all tools like a step before the testing that can be um, extremely helpful in figuring out when you need diagnostic testing for members of your workforce. To the extent there is going to be a role for diagnostic testing of employees, does, would this vary by the type of employer? What, what are the different considerations that an employer should bear in mind in thinking about whether to adopt some, some type of a diagnostic testing as part of its, as part of its program? Sure. So it certainly varies by um, the the work setting and, you know, the risks associated with your workforce. So is it um, an office setting where people are not coming and going and there is the ability to social distance? Or is it, you know, a retail setting where there's a lot of interaction and even though there may be um, masks and barriers, you are dealing, um, you know, with customers. So there's exposure. It's also depending on the, you know, what's going on in the local community, um, you know, frequent use of mass transit. So there's a lot of different factors in the workplace that can lead to how you want to develop, um, you know, a testing program 
and you know what your risk might be. There's also you know factories and um, you know people in healthcare settings who are serving patients. So um, even if it's not treating COVID patients, there may be you know higher risk, or you may want to take more precautions in testing those workers. So there's not a one size fits all solution for employers. There's just ways to think about the potential risk of exposure of your workforce, you know, the risk of transmission in the worksite, and what other tools you can build in, like densifying the offices to help um, figure out you know, when there should be testing and how much testing you might need. And then how frequently would it, might an employer test their employees? So with, with molecular-based testing, um, the result's going to tell you only whether you're currently infected, um, but there ordinarily is going to be some time lag between when you take the test and when you get the result. Um, and then, of course, after you have that test and that result, you could get infected later. So should employers be periodically retesting employees, or how, how would this work in practice? So... It also depends on what kind of test you're using, right? A rapid test can give you results right away, so but in it's but it's not going to be as accurate. Whereas a PCR test that might be more accurate, you would have to wait for the results. And whether you're collecting the samples on site and sending it to um, a laboratory offsite, or whether you're having um, employees use a home test, a home sample collection option, where they're getting their sample, um, where they're getting a kit shipped to them at home, they can collect a sample and send it back to a lab. So if you're talking about you know frequency and scope. Um, you're also building like who am I testing and when, right? You're not just testing every single person every single day. Um, you know, the the minute you know with a test outside, that's rapid right away. You have to think about um, can I test cohorts of my employees? So I'm getting a sample of different cohorts that interact, or can I test my um, higher risk employees? You know, maybe once a week or you know every other week if I want to offer regular testing to them because, you know, they might be interacting more with others. So the, the frequency depends on the factors I was naming before, that if you are, you know, in a in work environment that allows for a lot of social distancing, then you may not need to test as frequently or offer testing as frequently. And then, um, you know, if you're somewhere in, you know, a factory setting where there is, um, you know, fewer ways to social distance at work, you may want to test more frequently because if there's an outbreak, it's also more likely to spread. Um, You know, it's hard to prevent a case of COVID from entering your workforce, but you can do a lot to prevent an outbreak, um, you know, in your place of employment. And what about antibody tests? Is there a role for antibody testing uh, uh, for employers? Um, Antibody tests, um, may be useful for individuals in places where there were known large outbreaks and a lot of people were not able to get diagnostic tests right away. Like New York is a good example that if you got an antibody test there and it came back positive, the, the general recommendation with antibody tests is that you should get a second test by a different type of test um, because they can generate false positive results. Um, and if you got two positives in a place where there was a lot of spread by two different tests, then you know you 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 can consider yourself positive. But we're not at the point yet where there's enough widespread antibody testing and consistency of results that there's some sort of green pass that you can go back to work. And um, we're just not at the point yet. So I think it may be helpful to people in individual in determining their individual health status. Um, but for in, employers, we don't have enough, um, you know, understanding of all the different tests out there and their performance to know how to incorporate that necessarily into a return to work plan. But it certainly can help people figure out their their risk and the activities they may engage in if they've taken these tests and gotten a positive result. Turning to a couple of areas that the FDA has been getting a lot of questions on and just recently has issued some technical guidance on, one involves the testing of asymptomatic populations where someone doesn't have signs or symptoms of COVID or isn't known to have been exposed to someone who has the disease. 
to this point, there are no tests that are currently authorized specifically for that use. But the CDC, as we know, has guidance recommending use of authorized tests to test asymptomatic uh, populations in some circumstances. I'm just wondering about that disconnect between the FDA authorizations that have been issued to date, what the CDC has been recommending, and whether you are aware of any concern about this uh, by employers who are considering this kind of testing, and just more generally what the state of play is on this issue. I think the concern is that we don't have um, good data yet on the performance of tests in asymptomatic populations. And I think FDA has been pretty clear about that. They, what they've said is, look, um, tests can be ordered by healthcare professionals based on their um, medical judgment for, you know, whoever they think should get a COVID test, and that could include asymptomatic people. But the issue is we don't yet have a large data set on the performance on a test, you know, solely in an asymptomatic population. And so, you know, they issued the template. They'd like to see that data come in. Um, and so the, you certainly can test an asymptomatic um, person. But, you know, overall, this is going to be done widespread. We don't know if they'll, you know, what the potential false negative rate is or other concerns about the performance or what, you know, samples, um, specimen collection we should be using that's better. We just, you know, haven't generated that data yet. And so... They're, they're pointing that out as a concern um, as opposed to issues. Or earlier on in the outbreak, um, states didn't have enough testing, so they were restricting by their recommendations who should get a test. Um, now there's enough um, capacity so that more and more people can get a test, including asymptomatic, but you know the issue is more the performance in those populations. The other issue that was a subject of very recent FDA guidance is the use of pooled samples. There's been a lot of interest in testing in this fashion where you pool samples from multiple patients and then test individuals afterwards if there's a positive result in that pool. But to date, as with the test for asymptomatic populations, there are no tests that have been authorized specifically to be used in this manner. I'm just curious about whether this is something, to your knowledge, that's already happening. Is it something that people are waiting to implement until there's actually an FDA-authorized test uh, to use in a pool sample? Just curious what you've heard on that subject. Um, well, I mean, you know, scientifically pooled sample testing has been around for a while. Um, you know, it's, it's done by it's done by blood banks. There have been other, you know, recommendations for how to do it. Um, and it's been done in other countries for, for COVID. And so, uh, you know, look, I think FDA did a good job by issuing the template while they're getting a lot of questions. Before, you know, previously FDA had been issuing templates for submissions after there had already been some authorizations. And so now they're doing it up front so sponsors know what sort of studies to do and what data they need to collect. I think there's a lot of interest in it from an efficiency standpoint. Um, you know, FDA has said in areas where there's suspected low prevalence, it's a good way to be more efficient, test, you know, multiple samples at once and, you know, clear people as not having had it. If there's a positive, you need to test the individual samples. And their concern is the sort of low sample, the low positive sample being missed. And so they want to see um, really good test performance if you're doing this because presumably you're testing a lot more samples um, at, at once in multiple runs than you would be. So therefore, if your test isn't performing as well, you, you'd miss a lot more positive. So I think that they put out some suggestions on how to develop these and, you know, are looking for sponsors to come in with that data. And I think there's a lot of interest in doing this because it would be more efficient um, as we think about continuing to ramp up testing. Great. And then in your article, your um, commentary piece in the Wall Street Journal, uh, you, you talked about next generation sequencing and, and that your your firm, your company, Tempest, um, as well as Illumina and, and, there, and maybe others entering in this area as well, uh, are, are using next generation sequencing technologies 
for COVID-19 testing. So we hear a lot about NGS testing and wondering if you could just explain uh, what that means, how that technology is different from non-NGS testing, and then what, you know, what is the added value that that might bring in the context of COVID-19 testing? Um, there's a, you know, there's a lot of different ways that NGS can be deployed. Um, you can sequence the virus, so you can, like, over time for, for research, you know, identify different mutations. You can also use um, NGS panels to distinguish between, you know, COVID-19 and other respiratory viruses because you can use um, NGS for other purposes. These are really powerful machines that can be really efficient in terms of doing more pooled sample testing um, and, you know, generating more and more results more efficiently. So there's a, there's a bunch of different ways that it can be deployed by labs who are who have the NGS platforms. Okay, maybe we can also talk a little bit about the use of apps, the use of software apps. What what is the role do you think of apps in in the diagnostic testing and results reporting, for example? Well, I think apps can be used a number of different ways. They can certainly help people figure out um, if they should get tested based on how they're feeling or you know potential um, exposures or what's going on in their community. And you know, the results can be reported back to a patient on an app. You know, if you if you register, there's different um, labs and companies that are reporting results back, so they can provide information not just the results but other information about how to manage your condition, who else you might want to be in contact with. And then there are the contact tracing apps um, that, that are available. And I think folks are going to have to become comfortable with contact tracing and figuring out, you know, who they might have been in contact with, both to understand if they were exposed and also if they have COVID, understanding that, you know, for, for public health reasons, we need to think about where else that, that might have spread. And, you know, that's what we do in these kinds of epidemic um, situations. And to my knowledge, the FDA has not been self-regulating these apps actively. Are you are you aware of um, any FDA active regulation of these kinds of apps? No, I can't think of any that would meet the device definition um, and need to be regulated under an EUA. I mean, I think that there there's a number of helpful tools, but I, I haven't seen any that would be regulated by by FDA. I don't know. There could be sponsors working with FDA on it, but you know, I'm not sure. Thanks, Lauren. You know, I know in your past, I didn't talk about it in your bio at the beginning, but you're you're a lawyer in your in your background, and you formerly were a partner at a at a law firm. Um, I know you're not a legal function per se right now, but in your work in your work at your current company, are there other legal considerations that you deal with? Issues like privacy, um, any of the reporting obligations. What, what kinds of issues do you deal with at your company, or do you find that your customers or potential customers are struggling with? Um, I know that there are a lot of employment law issues um, related to this, and that you know varies by by state. Um, from my perspective, given my HHS experience, in addition to the FDA regulatory issues, you know we also focus on our laboratory compliance. And so, if you're an employer, you you know are going to have the test done by you know some laboratory or some healthcare professional, even if it's being done uh, you know with the on-site rapid test. The results do need to be reported to um, state and local um, public health departments. Now, it's generally the laboratory that takes that on. So, for example, you know, we would, you know, we can test employees and then we do the, the state reporting as needed. And, you know, from a public health perspective, CDC and HHS have issued more guidance about what sort of information they, they want to see reported so they can better understand the demographics of um, who's getting COVID, how it's spreading, where the cases are, and, you know, that's a lot of reporting obligations, but, you know, that falls on the lab, not something that the employers have to do, but they have to make sure is done. 
But what an employer does with um, the actual results, we've seen all different plans for that, you know, how the results are returned, whether employees opt in to having it returned to the employer, and then what sort of tracing or follow-up is done for workplace safety from the employer's perspective um, really varies. And one of those times that makes me happy, I don't have to actually um, practice law in that area. I'm sure that's comforting. That's great. So one closing question for you, ask you to put your FDA hat back on or your former FDA hat, uh, I I guess. Um, But just in in this area, in the area of COVID-19 diagnostic testing, generally, what do you think your former FDA colleagues are going to be most focused on in the upcoming weeks and months? Um, The real world evidence of how the, the tests are performing. Um, and, you know, understanding the different platforms that are out there and if there are different considerations for the different platforms with different samples, with different, you know, modifications. Um, I know they're very concerned about that because, you, you, you know, you authorize something, you know, you put it on the market based on the benefit risk calculation at the time that there was a you know, widespread need for diagnostics. But understanding the overall performance of these tests, I, you know, I know something is on their mind and I think it's the, the right place for them to be looking. And, you know, I know folks in the community are looking at generating the, the kind of data they need to, to understand the overall benefit risk because COVID testing will be, you know, will be with us for some time. And so usually you see the tests improving um, over time as we, you know, do, do more and more testing and understand their performance in different populations more. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's been striking to me is the frequency and speed with which the FDA has been updating its guidance, whether it's, you know, guidance documents on different topics or here, of course, with the diagnostic tests, we've seen them, you know, pull certain tests off the market or very quickly crack down on certain players that were promoting their tests for uh, home use and things like that when when they weren't authorized. Um, I've never seen anything quite like it in in my career. I'm just wondering when, when you were working on Zika and other subjects, did you see FDA have to spend so much time kind of reevaluating its decisions and sort of course correcting as it, as it was going along? Um, you know, I have seen FDA over time on in EUA situations work to get these tests permanently authorized um, and have them come in for permanent, you know, approval and, you know, meet the sort of longer term safety and efficacy expectations. So, you know, that would be something that I expect sponsors to do. But the sort of, you know, pivoting an approach and issuing new templates so rapidly. No, I can't remember a time like that. I mean, you know, I can't remember a time where there's this, you know, 24-7, you know, response mechanism that they set up at CDRH. So I think, um, you know, my former colleagues are working incredibly hard, but, you know, you know, in a public health crisis, that's what they're there for and that's what they do. Yeah, absolutely. I think as we said earlier on, this is, this situation is, uh, is, is unprecedented, I think, in our lifetimes anyway, as far as um, its extent, right? Well, thanks so much, Lauren, for your time. It's been it's been great talking to you, and really appreciate you uh, taking the time out to participate in our podcast today. Thanks. It's been great to talk to you. I think these are um, you know important topics and a lot to think about, and it's always good to reconnect. Thank you to our listeners today. That's all the time we have. Thanks for tuning into our podcast, Non-Binding Guidance. For more information about our practice or other topics of interest to life sciences companies, please visit our FDA regulatory and life science practice group pages at www.ropesgray.com. You can also listen to non-binding guidance and other Ropes Talk podcasts in Ropes and Gray's podcast newsroom on our website or subscribe to this series wherever you listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.